This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Okay. Still not clear. Okay. Well, his most recent one was... Five minutes ago, phone about to run out, Juice. Still safe in lockdown, thanks for the kind wishes. Frasco? Frasco? Are we live? Okay. Um, good morning, and welcome to Cyber Law and Business Report. Um, broadcast live here from the Internet Law Center in Santa Monica. Um, sorry about the confusion. There's a, the breaking story happening in Ottawa. Um, a terrorist attack um, apparently taking place on Parliament Hill. Um, there's a lot of um, unclear what's going on, but um, it appears that one person that has been shot at the Canadian War Memorial in Ottawa, um, the gunman is supposedly dead. Um, it's unclear whether there's one gunman or multiple gunmen. Um, the timing of the attack is um, you know, clearly suggests a possible um, terrorist motivation, given that um, today was the day that Nobel Prize winner um, no. Malayla was um, was going to become a Canadian citizen, and Canada had just um, joined um, the efforts against the um, of ISIS in the Middle East. So um, you will know, we'll see if we can keep you monitored on that. But um, our hearts go out to all of those in Ottawa, and um, hope that situation is uh, under control. Um, and it's those listening live. Josh Wingrove. Um, on Twitter has been is near the scene and has been tweeting updates on that. So, um, but today we're we're actually um, we're going to be talking to someone a little bit um, not too far from Ottawa, um, a couple hours away, and um, and that is um, we have um, Eric Jardine and he's with CIGI and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about internet governance. And um, we've had people on previously to talk about. You know, the ICANN transition, but we've done this mainly from an, an American perspective, and um, there have been a lot of people um, throughout the global community who are talking about really 
how this should be how this should go about. And um, Eric actually um, is one of the, the faculty or researchers who are kind of publishers or curators of the CIGA blog on um, reimagining the internet. So Eric, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming on. And um, so we, we, I mentioned that we we've had people talk about this transition and and the role of internet governance uh, on this show, but it's always been you know someone from a Department of Commerce or, or a U.S. business person. Um, so it's interesting to, to hear what, what the perspective from outside the U.S. is. But why don't we start by telling, talking a little bit about CIGI? I'm sorry, could you repeat the last bit there? Yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about CIGI? Okay, no problem. We're uh, we're a nonprofit uh, think tank located in Waterloo, Canada, which is just outside of Toronto, which is one of the, the biggest cities in Canada. We um, and we have, we start we set up what is known as the Global Commission on Internet Governance, and we did this in tandem with um, a UK-based think tank called Chatham House. Mm -hmm. Listeners may have heard of the the Chatham House rule before, and that's that's sort of that think tank has, is the origin of that. And so we set up this Global Commission, and the purpose of this commission is really to bring together a, a bunch of notables, people who have ties to government, people who have ties to the private sector, to civil society, to business, former directors of ICANN, and so forth. And we brought these people together with the aim of convening a series of sessions where they would discuss numerous topics to do with the problem of Internet governance. And the aim is, at the end of these of a two-year period, to deliver a final uh, statement or report uh, to coincide, I believe, with the 2016 OECD ministerial meeting, and basically deliver this report that will put together some statements aimed at really trying to, to guide the internet governance debate going forward. That there are a lot of tensions that exist right now, and hopefully the commission that we've helped to establish will be able to uh, tackle these issues head on and come up with suggestions that can sort of form, help form a coalition of like-minded states to get behind some propositions to keep the internet free, open, universal, universally interoperable, and so forth. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you guys just recently had a, a forum, and I, I believe it was um, on, on the, the, the war over internet governance. And mm -hmm. it's, is that where you see us um, currently at? Is is it really a, a war? I think it would be a war waged by other means. That you have the you have <laughs> clear political blocks that yes. are beginning to form. That this first emerged with the the WISIT conference in 2012, where you had Russia, China leading a, a group of states that advocated for. A, a transition of ICANN functions into the International Telecommunications Union or the ITU, and they were really sided off against your your classic group of Western nations led by the United States, but with Canada, Western European countries all in line, who advocate for what, we, what is known in the business as the multi-stakeholder model, which is right. such which basically involves states, civil society technical experts like engineers and so forth together, and they they govern the internet in a sort of uh, open and more democratic way as opposed to a state-based way, which the advocates, um, Russia, China, had put forward at, the, uh, at that WISIT meeting. Now, I think that's sort of the, the framing of the political sides of things, and then there's the means that are being waged here. And I think in that sense, it's a form of economic war combined with, uh, with cyber warfare. The cyber warfare element, I think, is pretty straightforward. Um, there's the recent indictment um, 
in, in the U.S. of the five people from the PLA who had been apparently involved in the Night Dragon attacks on U.S. petroleum and chemical companies. Yeah. It's a clear example of economic espionage uh, potentially driven or linked to um, the state of China. And then you have other measures that are being taken that are more aimed at protecting themselves from uh, a nation's aiming to protect themselves from what they view as being overreached by the National Security Agency in the U.S. So it's not war in the classic tanks, planes, and guns sense, but it is, I think, uh, a severe conflict of interest that has uh, many of the trappings of what could be considered uh, war in a very loose sense, yes. Well, I guess it, it's, it's almost um, it's very similar to the Cold War. You know, mm -hmm. there, there was a lot of geopolitical machinations and um, decisions were made and people backed based on the, the value and the, the, the contribution to that overall effort. And, mm -hmm. and you had a lot of proxy fights. And so right now, this is there's a competition on the Internet, I guess, between um, one block uh, in the U.S. and the others and and then I don't know what the, what's the best way to characterize it the, the censoring block, you know mm -hmm. China and Russia that want to you know definitely t t first take control away from the U.S. or multi stakeholders, but two um, you know strengthen their ability to have the right to censor. Absolutely, I agree with you entirely. I'd uh, when I first came across this debate, that was the first thing that struck me was that you know the old saying goes there's nothing new under the sun. And while the internet is viewed often as this new and revolutionary technology that's changing the nature of the game in every aspect of social life, this appears to be one area where that's not the case. The, before even knowing anything about WISIT and uh, all that ITU stuff that happened at that particular conference, you could probably guess if you said there's going to be a conflict of interest among nations between uh, over how the internet's run, you could probably guess where the sides would line up. You'd have... Right as you said, your censorship side, your free, uh, free market, free, uh, free politics side. And then typical, as you noted during the Cold War, you have an unaligned block. Right. And that's a bunch of states that have yet to fully come onto the Internet, a lot of African nations, for example, who are trying to pick, who will ultimately need, I think, to pick which, governments, which governance system works best for them and their long-term self-interest. And just to reference back to the commission that we set up, the Global Commission on Internet Governance, that's part of the purpose of that commission is to provide a clear statement on the virtues and values and benefits of, to all nations of a more free and open internet that's predominantly governed by a multi-stakeholder model. It's and, to try and, to bring those unaligned nations along with us. But at the ITU, there was a conference in Dubai, the ITU conference, where you know the ITU almost was trying to um, exert control over the internet, and it seemed that a lot of the non-aligned nations were um, were aligned. <laughs> for lack of a better way of phrasing, mm -hmm. in supporting the ITU in that respect. Yep. I think there's, there's, a, there's a, in my mind, there's a plausible case for why that is. The, the ITU is a UN-based system, and yeah. as a UN-based system, its, its members are composed of states. And so when you have these, what we could like call the non-aligned, but yet somewhat still aligned countries, right. those nations probably see themselves getting the largest voice at the table through a body like the ITU. It would be similar to the UN General Assembly. Right. In the UN General Assembly, one, vo one, one state, one vote is the way that it, it formally breaks down. So smaller nations are the equivalent of larger nations. In the ITU, you have a similar framework. So I think there's, there are reasons why 
organizations would, would see some value in the ITU, but it excludes, by definition, because it is a state-based organization, it excludes civil society, it excludes the engineers that are really responsible for developing the internet as we know it, and it excludes business and all these other significant players. And so right. I think it's a bit of a myopic view, but I think it is probably an aim just to get a seat at the table. And so but if, when you add in civil society and the multi-stakeholders, um, multi-stakeholders are largely, you know, the, the business interests in the internet. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, so a lot of the non-aligned, you know, the non, um, on, I guess you could say, instead of saying non-aligned, the non-online. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that, that dilutes them. I'm sorry, can you read the last bit there? That dilutes them. You know, um, if you, once you start including the business interests, that's not, so their, their um, relative share and weight in the equation is dramatically reduced for the non-aligned. Absolutely, yeah. There, there is that additional uh, layer of complexity there. That you have a, a dominance in the ITC, ICT space of Western firms in particular, although increasingly China Chinese firms are, are growing in terms of their market share. But these non-aligned groups have almost nothing in that respect. And so they are lacking in representation. Uh, and so they could very well feel that the multi-stakeholder system, that they can't effectively compete on all the vectors of that system. They, they lack, to some extent, uh, you don't want to push this too far, civil society groups that can engage on these issues. Um, they lack the business interests, as you said, or, or the um, and the, the states themselves are smaller and more peripheral to the, the system as it's been established. So I can understand where they'd be looking for their best route into having a say in how the system gets governed. Now, you recently had a blog post on you know, basically should the um, average internet user in a liberal democracy care about internet fragmentation and. Mm-hmm. How real a risk do you think that is, is of internet fragmentation? Because actually, recently, this was last week, there was a meeting, um, a roundtable with a, a member of the Senate Finance Committee here with a lot of leading executives in, in um, Silicon Valley. And um, the fragmentation, or, or as Eric Schmidt said, the risk breaking the internet um, was mentioned. Mm-hmm. Well, fragmentation really got a lot of steam uh, after the Snowden revelations. And with that came the came word that the NSA had been spying on uh, state officials in Germany and in Brazil in particular. And as a result of that, you got a push towards what's known as data localization, which was this desire to store data generated by Brazilians or by Germans in Brazil or Germany. And Paired with that was this traffic routing requirement that traffic from Brazil, when it re- goes to the internet, would have to bypass U.S. servers to avoid surveillance or inter- uh, U.S. internet exchange points. And so that was that sort of got the ball rolling on the fragmentation issue. But when you really start to dig down a little bit, there's a few points that come out of the fragmentation debate, as it is. Uh, the first is that the internet's already fragmented. And so when we're talking about fragmentation, it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not right now, it will be later, and we need to avoid that. It's a matter of degree. And it varies by issue area whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. So some forms of fragmentation, like legal fragmentation, for example, where each country comes up with their own laws governing, governing cyber issues, 
can be both a good thing and a bad thing. It inhibits business and it inhibits the prosecution of cybercrime, and those are sort of the bad elements of legal fragmentation. But by the same token, it allows nations to express their own socio-cultural preferences when it comes to how to govern people's behavior online. And those are, that's a, not an unmeaningful consideration. I mean, to, to pick uh, probably an example that most people have heard of, the European right to for, be forgotten is an right. example of this sort of legal fragmentation. And so it, there's, and there's a host of other things, data localization, traffic routing requirements, violations of net neutrality, and some that haven't even happened yet, like a, a failed transition from the current internet protocol version four to internet protocol version six, which expands the number of IP addresses and the number of devices that can be online. If that transition doesn't happen, we'll end up with almost two systems rather than the one system that we currently have because we're running out of IP addresses. Right. So I think it's a re- it is a real debate. There's uh, I've seen some significant costs associated with uh, with with forms of fragmentation. So it's not that it comes cost free. It has a lot of economic costs to do with lost GDP growth globally and nationally. And so it is problematic in that sense, but there are benefits to it. So you don't want to go right down the rabbit hole and say it's all bad, but at the same time, you have to recognize that there are some, some problems with fragmenting the system. And, um, and actually one thing that uh, the, uh, I think the, in talking about the data localization requirements, um, mm-hmm. the general counsel, I think of Facebook, um, he said, you look around, um, he said basically that you know the, the internet just isn't made that way. You know that that whole, that defeats the whole um, the whole purpose. He said, "Here's the quote: The internet is a medium without borders. The notion that you would have to place data centers and data itself that's used to serve particular communities and countries within a region is fundamentally at odds with the way the internet is architected." And um, you know, and and I believe. Uh, Eric Schmidt from Google said that if it, a balkanized internet would just make it a swamp void of any real meaning. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you agree with that? I do. I think for those two, for data localization and traffic routing requirements in particular, you have a, uh, a policy or, or a set of laws that will be enacted by certain nations that are going to be at fundamentally at variance with the way the internet functions. The internet Picks the when it when it's operating in the way it's supposed to operate. Picks the fastest route between point A and point B. It doesn't have to be a linear direct route. It can bounce all over, and it doesn't have to keep the packets of information together either. It can it can spread them out over the over the network. And so the idea that traffic has to be routed through specific IX internet exchange points means you're working against the technology. And the idea of storing data works against the technology. And in both cases that's going to produce a lot of inefficiencies, which hinders the ability of the, of the uh, internet to serve as a platform for e-commerce, for example. And then you add on to that the, uh, the, the requirements that it would, the costs and requirements of, say, setting up a server in every single country in order to, if you were, say, Google or Facebook, setting up a server in every country in order to last or to, in order to comply with data localization laws would be inordinately costly. Maybe a firm like, or a company like Facebook could manage that cost, but it has a huge uh, chilling effect on innovation and new startups because they're not going to be able to expand across borders if they have to set up a, in a unique server in each particular country. So well, here's, you know, here's the, the perfect example. Um, IBM's getting ready to spend a billion dollars to build local data centers throughout Europe. Um, mm-hmm. whereas, but that's something Dropbox 
you know, which has um, a large majority of its customers outside the U.S. You know, they're in 20 different countries that have pending um, um, data localization you know, ish, you know, debates, and um, you know, they can't afford to do that. You know, so they would just have to stop serving those countries. Um, Absolutely. So it's definitely a challenge. Now, the, uh, the NSA scandal, um, obviously, we've heard many different perspectives on that. How does that play in Canada? I'm oh, sorry, the which scandal? The NSA scandal, the whole Snowden affair. The, well, it's, uh, it, and it's having a, a similar polarizing effect as I think it's having in a lot of nations. There's the, those who say, um, who would be more of your typical civil uh, libertarians who are on the side of the idea that knowing about the NSA's activities is very valuable and that that will allow governments to put pressure on them to pull terrain in their activities and so forth. And then there are those who say, uh, these efforts are necessary. It shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody that the government was undertaking these activities. Some all along the around the margin, like just spying directly on leaders or um, prison programs with metadata collection within the U.S. might come as a bit more of a surprise. But the idea that the NSA, which is tasked with um, foreign surveillance, was doing foreign surveillance using the internet, shouldn't isn't really a, a gigantic shock. <laughs> but nevertheless, the debate has really, it has sort of polarized its two sides. All right. Well, um, we're going to um, delve more into this. But first, we're going to take a break. You're listening to the Cyberlaw Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use CertifiedKnowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics. So you know their SEO experts, but did you know they can help you with PBC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm. Sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. 
There are over 70 million active podcast listeners in the U.S. WebmasterRadio.fm reaches them all with the largest global distribution of any online business-to-business podcast network. Through iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, and the WebmasterRadio.fm mobile app, we can target and place your message in front of those active listeners immediately. Now, your message can be delivered with less commitment and investment on over 20 hours of weekly original content hosted by the most respected names in digital marketing. Thanks to an exclusive private offer available for a very limited number of companies. But you must act fast. Email sales at webmasterradio.fm today and get your message delivered now. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking with Eric Jardine of CIGI. And um, Eric, um, let's talk about your background. Well, my I have a PhD in international relations from uh, the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And before, I actually studied rebel groups. So I'm actually new to the internet governance space. I started working at CIGI, uh, and that's where I made when I made the transition over into um, this topic. And what I find fascinating about it is many of the real-world conflicts um, just basically find a representation online now. And so there's yes. no, no, no small or uh, no limit of interesting things that, that go on here. I mean, because everyone is talking about how savvy ISIS is with social media. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, it, and it makes sense because um, the one thing that is a, the Internet is is a leveler. And if you are a, you know, a terrorist group or even, you know, just a, a guerrilla organization, you know, the United States, we've, you know, we started with a, a guerrilla army that you know, beat the, the English and, uh, um, I can just imagine what George Washington and them would be doing today. You know, they would have social media accounts, and um, you know we wouldn't have necessarily Paul Revere riding through, um, you know Boston, uh, but you'd say he'd be tweeting. And so um, it's definitely a, a different environment. Um, but uh, yeah, and so that's the fact that you know these emerging groups, um, ISIS, are, are taking to the internet seems to make sense to me. Absolutely. I, yeah, I mean, there are those moments where it seems almost surreal and not to make light of the situation, but I remember a couple of years back he- hearing of a, a Twitter battle between NATO, ISAF in Afghanistan, and the Taliban spokesperson. And they were tweeting back and forth about an airstrike and whether or not there had been civilian casualties. And just the idea that, that, that the, the Taliban insurgency in Afghanistan was able to, was using social media for that purpose and that NATO was forced to respond, it was just, it, it took me by surprise. But when you think, when you sit down and think through the, the mobilization advantages that something like social media brings with it, yes. it's, it's perfectly evident that non-state groups like ISIS uh, are going to be using uh, this, this particular tool for that purpose. And it's interesting you, you highlight that point, because um, I've, I've dealt with some of the Chinese medicine, these, you know, the Chinese internet activists. And you know, I think China has two fears about the internet. One is content. Obviously, they want to censor certain things. So, 
um, you know, certain dissidents will, will get censored. But I honestly think their biggest fear is mobilization. The fact mm-hmm. that it will be used to mobilize, and we're seeing it in Hong Kong. And um, that, I really think, you know, when we have a nation of, I, I forget how many million they are, um, you know, that's, that's a very worrisome tool. And especially when people can just carry it in their pocket. Absolutely. I think you're, you're exactly right as well about what China cares about. There are some censored terms and things like this, and they do have the great firewall of China aimed at really filtering certain stories, things to do with debates and so forth. But there was a good study done um, by Gary King uh, and a couple of co-authors, and what they found was exactly what you said, which is what China really censors on Weibo and all these other sites is uh, anything that seems to be aimed towards what is essentially collective action, like the protests in Hong Kong. If you're trying to get people together for a political purpose, that's where you're going to be censored extremely heavily by um, the very large and uh, Chinese uh, internet police. And yes, and so that that really seems to be um, their big concern. I actually met one guy, he he was on his 18th blog, because blogs 1 through 17 have been shut down. But, um, you know, just Little things like just you know how uh, you know I I met one gentleman who had a book that was coming out that was an underground bestseller, but it had to be you know it had to be sold by basically saying hey the book's going to be available here at this time, and then you know a hundred or so people would show up just to get the book, but it wasn't sold like in traditional scenes, and mm-hmm. um, so um, I just get this note that uh, the reporter in on Parliament Hill is Josh. His Twitter account is at Josh underscore Wingrove. But his last tweet, um, which was a half hour ago, phone about to run out of juice. Um, still safe in lockdown. Thanks for all the time wishes. So um, I think there's an ad for uh, <laughs> a competing cell phone net- network that our cell phones last longer. But um, in any event, um, so a- as we move forward, you know, there, we just had Net Mundial. And you know, there are other efforts um, to kind of focus the debate on Internet governance. What do you see as the next big, big thing that's really going to force this issue? Well, there's been uh, a few, I would almost call them false starts, since Net Mundial in Brazil. Uh, one was uh, this, or this initiative called the NetWell Initiative. It was an initiative called the Net Mundial Initiative. And it had very little relationship with the initial Net Mondial uh, processes that went on in Brazil. It was started by Fadi Jihadi, who's the head of ICANN, and it was paired up with the World Economic Forum. And what their aim was... (laughs) Sorry? And the World Cup. It was right before the World Cup in Rio. Sorry, can you repeat that last bit? It was right before the World Cup in Brazil. Yeah. And the aim was to sort of get uh, a, a new platform for discussing internet governance issues, a more centralized coordinated body uh, with the aim of discussing pertinent internet governance issues, but not so centralized that it took on sort of an ITU states only kind of form. So it did maintain that multi-stakeholder, uh, multi-stakeholder model. Uh, the problem though was that, and well, at least among civil society groups, was that it, the Net Mondial initiative was seen as uh, being a bit top down and heavily loaded with business interests. So that sort of put off or tweaked the nose of a lot of uh, uh, civil society activists. So at the Internet Governance Forum that was held in Turkey just this past September, 
there was a lot of talk of this this initiative at the World Economic Forum and and what was what was uh, emerging there and sort of the the mumblings on the streets or in the meeting rooms and the side corridors really was that many groups that feel like they have a, a I think legitimately feel like they have a big stake in the future of internet governance felt excluded by this process. So there have been these efforts. I, uh, long and the short of it anyways, there have been these efforts to, to try to move the, the governance debate ahead. Um, unfortunately, and this is sort of the, what happens in uh, large international fora like, uh, like the UN and the IGF and all these sort of things, you have so many people involved that it becomes very difficult to actually make progress because you have contending interests, people need to come up with, with uh, compromise solutions and those are difficult, uh, exponentially more difficult the more people you have in the room. Um, so in terms of what, what is next, what will be the next major uh, step, I think the biggest one that may or may not come to pass would be the IANA transition. I know you mentioned that in the beginning yes. of, the, of the program. I think that will be the next big deciding moment in the internet governance space. Uh, from what I understand, proposals for that transition are due around January sometime, yeah. and um, the Department of Commerce will be making a decision about a whether or not a transition is undertaken at the end of September of 2015. It, it uh, so that's not a lot like, of time. Yeah, it seems like if they mentioned that they have the the option to extend, you know, one-year options um, for four additional years. So mm -hmm. I, I think that we'll see... Um, yeah, I think we'll see at least one extension probably in the in that process. I think you you probably called it right on the money there. I I don't foresee a, a viable plan being put together over the next eight months. It just isn't I think in the cards, and that's really the time frame we were talking about without an extension. What will happen uh, in terms of the geopolitics of another of an extension, which would basically just be more of the same old same old. I'm not sure. I think developing nations express concern about ICANN's location because they don't really have uh, much leverage or recourse over the organization, except for under California law, which is where ICANN's incorporated. Right. Um, and larger nations like Russia and China just simply disagree with the idea of the U.S. being the one that ultimately presides over changes to the root zone file of the domain name system. And so you'll have tensions like you had it with it. Uh, uh, within 2012, really come to the foreground again, if if a transition is not affected. Now, um, your blog is entitled um, "Reimagining the Internet," mm -hmm. and do you think that's what we need to do? Do we need to reimagine the internet, and how, and, and what does that entail? Well, that's a fairly tricky question. I think you can answer the yes internet. Or no. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, there's never, I don't think in this space there ever is a strict yes or no answer. So I think there's elements of the internet that, if we wanted to imagine what the most effective governance of the internet is. And I've got a definition here of what internet governance means. It's, this is by uh, an academic affiliated with CG Nude, Laura Donardis. She's also a professor at um, American University. And her, her definition is of internet governance is defined as policy and technical coordination issues related to the exchange of information over the internet. So basically, if you wanted to put that in more colloquial terms, basically how do you run the system so that it does what you want it wanted to do in the most effective way possible? And right there is the rub of the issue because it's the, we 
it, you can define, if you define the system as a, as, a, as a system for communication and exchange of information, you're already assuming something about the system. And certain nations don't share that assumption. So your Russias, your Chinas, they want a system that's effective at communicating certain forms of information, but only certain forms of information usually to do with um, economics. They don't want it to be used as a tool of social mobilization and such things. So there's fundamental disagreement about what the system's purpose should be. And then there's fundamental disagreement at a, a second step about who should ultimately run whatever governance or arrangement we put in place to try to, to try to manage the system. Should it be open? Should it be closed? And so in terms of reimagining the governance, I think it's less about, um, I think within so within Western countries, where the internet has basically originated and expanded the fastest and, and uh, up to this point, I think what we're basically talking about is maybe less of a reimagination than a rearticulation of why that system is beneficial, not just to those in the West who are already online, but to those in developing nations who have yet to come online. And that's really where I think the governance challenge comes, that in the future, if the West's share of the internet, that is, number of individuals who are online, for example, is going to diminish. And it's going to be replaced by China, which will serve as a huge bloc, but other countries as well, like India, and large groups of countries like Sub-Saharan Africa. And so it's articulating a message that makes the current system, which has worked incredibly well at facilitating economic growth, political expression, uh, exchange of ideas, innovation, the system that's worked well to facilitate all of those to articulate why that's good given other nations' situations. Right, and and, and I suspect, and then correct me if I'm wrong on this, I suspect that it was never articulated to begin with. It just happened, you know, it just happened to happen that way, and um, and so this is what we got, and, and it's worked so far. And hey, isn't that great? <laughs> uh, yep, I think you you probably hit the, head, the nail on the head with that one. That. Usually, and I don't know why this is necessarily the case, but it does tend to be this way, you only get a need for clear definition and, and articulation of the political side of things once states become involved. Right. And to the most of the, of the Internet's history, it's been the engineers and the academics who have come up with a system, who've designed the, say, for example, TCP IP, which is the fundamental principle of the Internet that allows all the systems to, to interoperate. Those were designed with a very specific, discrete information-sharing purpose in mind. There was no politics in it. It was meant to be an efficient system for sharing information. And then as states have sort of woken up to the fact that it's an incredible platform for e-commerce, that so much of our daily lives is now spent interacting with the online world, that they have to become involved. And that's where all of a sudden politics comes in. And so now we need clear definitions of what the system is, what does it mean, how does it actually benefit us, and that needs to be clearly articulated for those nations that don't quite know where they stand on the issue. And um, yes, and, and it does get complicated when you have uh, the nation states involved, and you know it's kind of odd to be have this thing that's such a vibrant um, part of our life and economy, and someone says, you know, where's the operating manual, and, so, and the response is, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's a peculiarity. I mean, I, I was shocked when I found discovered that ICANN was located. You know, I'm, I'm broadcasting from Santa Monica. That ICANN had been located in Marine del Rey, and you know, mm -hmm. and that was just an accident. It just kind of, it just happened that way. And so, once it was located there, it made sense. 
And, um, you know, it's just odd things and how it evolved. And unfortunately, it's worked. And so I guess the burden um, is on those who want to change it, even though there may not have been a, uh, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons why the the original formation could have been done differently. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think there's, and this is no knock on the engineers who have designed a system that I couldn't possibly have designed. They've done an excellent job, but a lot of the, uh, the some of the systems or some of the problems that we're facing today are derived from the fact that the system didn't wasn't built with these things in mind. So even the the I mentioned this transition from this from Internet Protocol version four, right. which has a certain number of addresses to Internet Protocol version six. We picked version four because it seemed at the time that the like four, however many, I think four something billion addresses was going to be more than enough to accommodate any number of devices that we wanted to connect to the system. Now that seems really passe. Why would we ever think that the system wouldn't would stop around that that level? And location of ICANN and, and the major governance institutions that are involved are all the same, is all the same. You had it was predominantly an American based system when it got started. That was the first commercial applications emerged in that market, uh, and so you have. Uh, this, a lot of the, the governance infrastructure originating in the U.S., which makes other nations now uncomfortable. But it's it's one of those instances of, uh, of I think, uh, a system that's the benefits of the system itself are actually creating the problems that we're now facing. So the, the fact that the system's universally interoperable and a terrific comp, uh, platform for e-commerce is why so many people are coming online. And because so many people are coming online, we're now having people and people with different values and different political perspectives and, and, and objectives for the system itself. We're now having this issue of how do we govern the system given these different takes. If it remained a Western-based system, Internet governance would be a pretty straight cut and dry issue. You'd have some tensions between Europe and the U.S. over certain things like the right to be forgotten on the European side or net neutrality on the U.S. side. But you wouldn't have these core differences about whether or not the state should play a heavy-handed role censoring the internet or not, like we have currently. So, um, Eric, we only got a, a few minutes left. If people want to find out more information about CIGI and, and you, um, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, there we have our the CG website. It's which is a ci is www.cigi.org. Uh, and a lot of information on the Internet Governance Project can be found there, as, long, as well as my uh, bio and contact information. And then the commission that we set up, that is the Global Commission on Internet Governance that CG and uh, Chatham House have set up, has its own website as well. And that's, the website for that is ourinternet.org. And so information about the commission, its work, and the aims and objectives of that body can be found at that address. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you, and I appreciate you staying on and, and talking with us. And uh, again, our, you know, from my country to yours, our hearts go out to everyone affected by what's going on in Parliament Hill. Thank you very much for that, and thank you for having me on the uh, on, on today. Thank you. We'll be back. Right, have a good day. These messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat. 
by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at box speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contest and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. InternetMarketingNinjas.com is the online dojo of the highly trained and skilled Internet Marketing Ninjas. Disavow documents, reconsideration requests, Panda and Penguin penalties. Let our superior SEO ninjas confront all of your link-related issues. The Internet Marketing Ninjas are equipped to master any marketing exercise, content creation, authorship, link building, PPC, and more. Plus, build more buzz for your brand with our social media marketing strategy. Discover all that the Internet Marketing Ninjas can do for you. Visit the online dojo now at InternetMarketingNinjas.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and uh, again, I want to thank Eric once again for, um, for joining us. It was a great discussion. And we have information on Eric and CG at uh, our blog, which is cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. And um, check it out. It has background on him, the, the Internet Project, the Internet Governance Project. And uh, so um, definitely check that out. Um, Last week, um, you know, we definitely we talking about I am Sarkeesian, and um, it looks like you know, just looking at some of the responses on social media um, today, it seems to be that I am Canadian um, is the response to today's tragedy. Um, last night, um, the nation and I guess the end, um, the news media lost a giant, and Ben Bradley. Um, ben Bradley had been the publisher of the uh, editor of the. Uh, Washington Post for many years, and he was the person who um, took made some of the most important decisions in um, journalistic um, American journalism history in the second half of the 20th century. And um, for example, you know, he was behind the decision in publishing the uh, Pentagon Papers, um, the, where that um, thing Ellsberg's. Um, you know, files that related to um, the history of the, the Pentagon's efforts in Vietnam, and um, which, um, which actually ended up turning a thousand New York Times. But in any event, um, he was involved in that as well as yes, um, he uh, he made the decision. Um, it may have been to print the story, and uh, um, Nixon Nixon administration went to court and upheld the decision of both the New York Times and the Washington Post to publish him. But more importantly, he was a, a critical figure in backing the Washington Post's efforts to investigate Watergate. And, 
if you look back um, and look at all the president's men, and you look at um, in the movie and the book, um, you know the administration, the Nixon administration, was using a lot of power to intimidate and to um, you know silence critics. And uh, you know the Washington Post, you know this was, was this was taking a big risk to their integrity, to their access to the administration. And um, they went for a story that changed America. And some people think that it changed America for the bad because everyone wanted to break the next Wargate story. But, um, you know, it took a lot of courage. It took a lot of guts. And, um, and so Ben Bradley, Bradley passed away um, last night. And uh, I think that he served his nation well as a paragon of the media and, um, you know, as someone, I guess, in the media, um, you know, he, he sets a bar that all of us have to um, live up to. Uh, and he has died at the age of 93. So our, um, our hearts go out to all his family and the, the Greater Washington Post family. Um, and they remember what, what truly was a, a giant in journalism. So um, we only have a few minutes left. And I, we, we were going to talk a little bit about the midterm elections, but um, time won't allow it. Um, we will be having a segment on uh, the midterm elections, the day following election. We will be broadcasting on November fifth, and we will be talking about um, we will be talking about the results of those elections. And I just saw breaking news that the Ottawa police believe there's more than one shooter. So um, definitely, hopefully, that other shooter gets found quickly. Um, so, but um, we'll talk about what they mean. And so, but these are important elections. And, uh, you know, obviously the, there are differences in the parties on issues such as net neutrality and there's even issues on, on cybersecurity. You know, to what extent should businesses be required to uh, up their game on cybersecurity? And should that be mandated or should it be voluntary? Um, there are differences on issues important to tech community like immigration. And so these are all issues that have major ramifications um, for the Internet and for the tech community. And so um, if you haven't registered to vote, wherever you are, you, you know, the voting registration deadline is coming in most states very soon. Um, and please vote. It's, you know, these are important elections. Um, you know, the, out, the outcome of, for example, something such as net neutrality. You know, if the um, FCC does develop new rules on net neutrality, not only will it be challenged in court, but the first, um, the last net neutrality rules um, the House of Representatives passed a resolution to overturn them. And, you know, the fellows few, few votes short in the Senate of doing so. Well, you know, if the election were held today, many believe that the Republicans would regain the Senate, and which could have an impact there uh, and um, lead to an overturn of net neutrality. And so, you know, these are things that you got to take into account as we come to this election. It does raise one question for me, and I've always asked this question for years. Um, we always, you know, since 19, since 1976, you know, we've and we've had uninterrupted tradition of uh, presidential debates for presidential elections. In fact, we even had Frank Farenkopf on our show a few years back, and who um, who actually was a member of the commission for presidential debates, uh, although he was speaking at online gambling. Um, but we don't have that for the midterm elections, and it just puzzles me. It's not like the issues are any different or are any less of any less consequence, but somehow just because that these are a collection of 
535, you know, not entirely, but 435 House elections and 33 or 34 Senate elections, um, we we don't give it the same merit that we do for presidential election. And I've always thought it would increase um, understanding and debate. And um, it would be uh, increased turnout because there's a huge drop in turnout midterm elections. So I, I always I think we should have debates for that. And I wish there were televised debates, but um, any event that that will not happen this time. But hopefully, when we come to this point four years from now, that will be the case. So um, that's all we have for now. And um, I want to thank all of you for joining me. And um, we um, definitely our prayers go out to everyone in Canada. Um, and um, but I definitely want to thank Eric. You, you did a great job in explaining what they're doing. It's definitely an interesting project, and this is a critical time in the internet as we go through this transition. And um, but uh, I want to thank you, and please join us next week. Uh, we'll be back here at the same bat channel here at the Internet Law Center in, in Santa Monica. Check out our website at internetlawcenter.net. And um, until next week, this is Bennett Kelly. Have a great week. Court is adjourned. We will see you next week here on Cyber Law and Business Report only on webmaster.fm. Download our mobile app and check us out online at places like iHeartRadio.fm. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270... This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.